Okay, here's the deal. I have a Facebook page called Rogue Librarian, and that was sort of an experiment to see if anybody would be attracted to like a more colorful personality covering works of literature, nonfiction, uh, the different kinds of books that we read in a more interesting and maybe like, you know, I guess spastic way or a way that it was more about the musing than it was about like trying to get people to read more in education. Although underneath what I was trying to do with it was I did want to inspire people to read more because I, I think people are more um, articulate and more intelligent whenever they try to sit in someone else's shoes for an hour and, and listen to their thoughts and they're more empathetic, but I didn't want to be preachy about it. I just wanted to have fun. Okay. So, for some reason, Facebook Live is not allowing me uh, to use my camera for my computer. So what I've had to do is I'm sort of combining both of my platform, my podcast platform and my Facebook platform in order to give you this content today because I'm so unbelievably overdue uh, to post this that I just, it's <laughs> taking me forever to post my February reads. I know it's March, but February. So welcome to Millions of Tyrants. I'm your host, the rogue librarian himself, John Beadle. So, all right, this episode's actually sponsored by BookTube, where we yap and gush about all the books that everyone expects us to be impacted by, but we really aren't. Um, and so, uh, we have a uh, great lots of channels on. Is this is this really working? Is this is this tone that I'm using really working? This sort of like satiric quality to what I'm trying to say. Is it really working to you? Here's my rant. Okay. Um, if I follow different groups who post about books on Instagram and on Facebook, and for the most part, it's just pictures of really well-placed books against a wall or a desk or a bed, and the lighting is really nice. That's not what I really care about, okay? I don't care about that. I care. What's the review? And, and what I'm frustrated by is that a lot of people like the image of the book, but they don't actually talk about the content. And of course, usually the books are like the latest craze, young adult uh, genre fiction being put out there for some sort of like political or cultural reason that everybody seems to be impacted by. Some of these books work. Most of them don't. Uh, I think of a book that worked. It was Wonder. That book really worked. Um, it took an idea. But see, it took an idea of a, of a boy who had this disease. He had this this, this that, that disfigured his face. We looked really uh, looked really strange to the other kids in public school. But the whole story is about how he ends up going to public school and experiencing the ins and outs of friendship and social anxiety and things like this. Now the book actually works. It works because um, it works because the author ran into one of these little boys in a market somewhere and felt like she could try to understand their experience, the experience of this kind of disfigurement through the text, through the story. And that really works because it's that the purpose and the tool of the story is to empathize. But all my kids when I was a teacher were reading it, and so I read it, and I, and I wasn't that crazy about the book or anything like that. Um, I know there's a movie that's come out. My wife tells me I need to watch it, but I have not seen it yet because I don't really care. Like I should care, but I guess, but I just don't. I don't care to watch it um, right now. But it was one of those books that really worked for me. And it worked, I think, for a lot of my students because it really taught them to step outside of their experience. Books that don't work, The Hate You Give. The Hate You Give. Um, this book is utter garbage. 
it's utter garbage, not because the, the characters aren't compelling or whatever. It's utter garbage because of the, the sheer amount of straw men that it creates in order to set up uh, their big character as this hero, um, in order to expose the conversations about race. Uh, well, I had a colleague once who referenced the book, but instead of calling it The Hate You Give, they called it the Black Lives Matter book. That's exactly what it is, okay? Um, and this colleague of mine was actually a part of Black Lives, a Black Lives Matter chapter in Brooklyn for a long time. So it's not like it's this thing. But these kinds of books, you can tell when it's, when it's preachy. Look, I grew up as a, as a Christian evangelical, okay? And that means I grew up in a world in which we had all of our, we had like our subspecies, we had like our own version of Eminem, you know, the rapper. We had our own Christianized version of movies, and we had our own mythologies that we really paid attention to. And what we what we saw ourselves as is countercultural. That's the way we viewed ourselves, okay? And we spent a lot of time uh, devaluing other art and and really appraising only the art that spoke our language and actually told our worldview really and, and held together really well in the story. And the problem with that is that you you very quickly go very easily it's very easily it's like a razor's edge to go from um art that is speaking the truth to sheer propaganda that does nothing more than create an echo chamber by which other the which other art just look it just pales in comparison it's not even close i mean it, it can even be well done uh, even well done propaganda uh still but still um i mean it's not triumph of the will over here okay we got to avoid these things these things are not art Okay, they look, they may look cinematically pleasing, okay, but, but they betray, they betray, they, tell, they, they prop up an image um, that betrays any kind of real experience, what actually happens in real life. Okay, the point I'll make about that before I get into the books that I've read in, that I read in February is this, books are transformative be, before they are, they are um, ornamental. They are transformative before they're ornamental, Right? I don't want to simply look cool because I'm carrying around a book. All right? I want the book to get in to get into me, into my soul, into my mind. I want it to challenge me. I want it to speak to me. Okay? I don't want it to preach to me. I want the book to give me an opportunity to understand in a deeper way. And it's not that like I'm opposed to preachiness per se. Okay? Gilead's one of my favorite books. Of all time, Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Look it up; it's amazing. It's about a preacher named John a John Ames. But see, it's not that John Ames is preaching that makes it so powerful. It's that what makes that story powerful is it's about a man who's broken, who's trying to help people and understand who he is in his family, his generations of preachers, and locate his own experience as an older man with a younger son, but right before he dies. That's what makes it powerful. Not that it's preachy, right? So take it from me who grew up in this world where we try to just be really overly preachy about our content, guys, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. A lot of these books are forgetful. They're just very forgetful, uh, forgettable. And I want to do my do what I can to kind of tell people, like, like, look, read everything. Read whatever. Read whatever you want. Read what really brings you life. Read the things that you, you're interested in. It's better to read than not to read, right? Almost none of it's wasted. But at least understand that the experience itself should um, should challenge you. I mean, really challenge you. So when people say things like, oh, this book, you don't like it, you, the reason you don't like it is because this book wasn't written for you, whether it's because of the color of your skin or your worldview or your political 
uh, perspective, all you have to do is just say, well, then that's not a book. That's a tract. That's not a book. It's propaganda bound into a, a book. So are we straight on that now? Has everybody realized how wrong they are? Has everyone come to the realization that I'm right? <laughs> okay, I'm going to move on. So, the books that I read. All right. Book number one that I read in February, To Heal a Fractured World. To Heal a Fractured World. Subtitled, The Ethics of Responsibility uh, by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I think he's actually Lord Rabbi now. He was he was knighted by the Queen. He lives in London um, very well, I mean, very articulate, very powerful speaker. Uh, but Rabbi Sachs, this is what it says in Goodreads, the description, one of the most respected religious thinkers of our time, makes an impassioned plea for the return of religion to its true purpose as a partnership with God in the work of ethical and moral living. What are, what are our duties to others, to society, and to humanity? How do we live a meaningful life in an age of global uncertainty and instability? Then he goes on to say he does a lot of different things. Talks about how we're here to make a difference a day at a time and an, an act at a time for as long as it takes to make the world a place of justice and compassion. Um, now, I'm very, very much attracted. I, I'm a Christian, but I'm very attracted to Jewish thinking and Jewish intellectual life. Um, because I believe that the Jews are actually extremely, uh, very resilient. And when I was in college, I was a philosophy major. And one of the things that really I struggled with was how to discern these ethical or to, yeah, to discern and, and to deconstruct these ethical dilemmas set up by some, by my professors, by the readings and over issues. And it was actually in a class that I took called on death and dying. That was literally the class. It was called on death and dying. And, um, I had to take it twice because the first time it was my first philosophy class ever as a, as a major. And I was ready. To, I was about to fail. And I had to drop it last minute and then take it again a year later after I got some philosophy under my belt because I was way in over my head. And I got a much higher grade the second time. But I remember reading going, there's no hope in here. Nobody's really making these compelling cases against like issues like euthanasia. And then I would stumble across these articles written by Jewish thinkers and go, wow, you know, this is some really profound stuff here. Some really, some really great arguments. And Rabbi Sachs is no different. He's a man who clearly cares about the world. And what I think about, it's interesting about Jewish philosophy in particular, or Jewish thinking, is that a lot of it's very philosophical, and a lot of it is is drenched in ethical thought, ethical thought. And so, uh, if you go to like a synagogue, they're going to be talking, they're going to be, the liturgy is going to be very about, very much about transcendence and the sovereignty of God, but when you hear their conversations, a lot of it's going to be about how we should live, what's the best way to live, right? And so... What Rabbi Sachs does a really good job in this book on is really sort of using the Old Testament as well as Jewish intellectual um, thought and in conjunction with Western philosophy to construct an argument for how moral, faithful, religious people can transform the world in this age of secularism and post-modernity. So it's a really powerful book. I, I, it resonates with me deeply. I had to, um, I wrote a paper on it for my class, uh, one of my classes recently, and just had a great time. So, To Heal a Fractured World. That's my one of my biggest recommendations to you. All right, book, the next book. I'm not going to say book number two because I don't have a list in front of me. Book number two, Alexander Schmemann's 
for the life of the world. For the life of the world. Um, Alexander Shmuel was actually a was a uh, a Russian Orthodox priest and theologian, and I, I read his I read this book because it had been recommended to me, and it's a great book because he starts he opens it up with that quote that says you are what you eat you are what you eat, and he kind of like takes that quote, and he extends it into the the religious and the spiritual life, where he says look whatever you do whatever you consume, okay on a daily basis, that is what you become. That is the kind of spiritual animal that you are, you know? So if you, if you take it just very basic, on a basic level, okay? If you YouTube um, video games all day long, let's say, all day long, then what's gonna, when, when you get engaged in conversation, what are you gonna talk about, right? Um, when you look at job offers or jobs, or, or where to go for school, what are you going to think about? What are you going to enroll in? How do, these, how do these daily habits of our lives actually impact the way, the, the, the future decisions we make? Okay? And so he extends this into like the religious life. You know, we go to, we, my wife and I go to a very high church expression, uh, liturgical church. So we do like a lot of standing, a lot of sitting, kneeling, we cross ourselves. You know, you can think about these habits that form us in that way. We, we're not just doing those things because everybody else is doing them. We do those things because they form and shape our habits, and then those habits have an, a way of shaping our character, and that character has a way of shaping our destiny. So Christians are what theologians call eschatological in their religion. Eschatolog eschatology basically means a study of the future. We're eschatological or futuristic in our orientation. We're looking to this future time in which all things are made new. And so what For the Life of the World does is it posits the notion that if you participate in this way, it's eschatological. You are tasting of the new heavens and new earth, your vision. Okay, the philosophers call that your telos, T-E-L-O-S. And so it forms you into the kind of person that is going to receive the future, the new heavens and the new earth. So it's very important that we think of it that way. So for the life of the world also is a reference to the idea that religious faith or faith in general, right, is that which he calls ensouls the world. Ensouls the world. It, it makes the world more a life, more of a life, right? Whereas technology and secularism and a lot of modernity has simply has actually broken down our world so much that we don't know who we are anymore. We feel itemized. We feel more alone than ever before. We fear we feel atomized, right? We carry around these devices everywhere that we go. These iPhones, these uh, computers that they record our conversations, and then and then the, and then the content of our conversations. The next thing you know, gets put up in an ad directly targeted at us on Facebook or Amazon. This is not. This is not just like, this is not being, being a conspiracy theorist here, okay? There's actually a word for it. Have you ever heard the, it's like a phrase that Google uses. Um, I forget the phrase on the top of my head right now. Um, but I think it's actually called something like, um, oh, what's it called? Oh, shoot. Okay, somebody will remind me what it's called. Um, okay, so let me let me just move on. But you'll remind me. So basically, it's a, the, the all-seeing eye looks over you. Oh, uh, it's, yes. Okay, I know what it's called. Here it comes. Are you ready for it? Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. Something capitalism. I forget. I can't remember. Okay. 
I'll come back to that later. All right, for the life of the world. Next book I read. I read this in one sitting on a Saturday. Saturdays are sort of my like deep reading uh, days, and I love to do it in the morning. Since I don't mow my own lawn anymore and I pay a man to do it, uh, I have Saturday mornings free. Yay! So uh, it's a book by Donald Miller, who's like a brand guy. Um, called a, a story. Uh, it's a book called Building a Story Brand. Okay, sorry. Got a lot of nonfiction here. Got to p- pull through it. Uh, just bear with me here. Building a Story Brand. This was interesting because what Donald Miller does is he says, okay, here are the components of a really good hero's journey. Here are all the components of what really makes a good story. And these components make a good story because they are, it's the same story over and over again in all the stories that really resonate with us the most. Whether it's Braveheart or it's the Passion of the Christ or it's Iron Man, these stories of the individual separated from society, right, who leaves his home, uh, finds a mentor, that mentor either passes away or leaves, they come back um, and they go on this this quest of enlightenment or a journey where they conquer um, different, they overcome different hurdles and, and they end up basically um, coming back home transformed. That's the same story over and over again. He talks about how he talks about how this notion of, of branding has always been wrong because it doesn't actually in, in engulf people or, or actually enroll them in the stories that we tell, right? In the stories that we tell. So it's something to think about. It's a decent book. It's not fantastic. But if you're in the, the market of branding and advertisement like I am, uh, and then you know that this is actually a really good way to think about how to not feel like you're just a, um, a dirty capitalist who's just trying to, you're selling your soul by trying to get people to buy all your products. It's actually a way to do it ethically, a way to really believe in your product to the point where if someone can, people purchase it, you actually enrich their lives, right? Okay, um, that's that. Now, the next book, book number four that I read this year, or uh, in February, I mean, is titled Anglican Identities by Rowan Williams. A decent book. Really good kind of sweeping history of the Anglican Church. I am an Anglican Christian. Uh, it means we have smells and bells, and um, we love we we love Jesus. And we typically are associated with, like, people call us Catholic light. But what defines an Anglican? Well, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, seeks to do that with this book. It's fantastic. It's a, it's a good book. It's a good read. Short as well. He, he writes these really uh, punchy, punchy, punchy books. Also, by the way, I just remembered what I meant to say. Um about Google earlier in the book. Okay, I told you that phrase. I couldn't remember it. I just wrote it down. Surveillance capitalism. Surveillance capitalism. It's the idea that they are recording your conversations, looking at what you look at, in order to sell you things, right? So that's why people feel that way. They feel targeted, right? And it's nice. We like it. We like it. We like the fact that Google knows us better than we know ourselves. And the reason it knows us better than ourselves is because it knows our habits. Our habits form our character. Okay, next book by Scott McKnight titled It Takes a Church to Baptize. It's an argument for infant baptism. If you're into that theology and you want to understand it, um, then go deeper into it. Okay, next, a novel, finally. Woo, here we are. A novel that I actually read in February titled A Gentleman in Moscow by, I believe it's Amor Towles. I'm sorry, I'm not probably not pronouncing that correctly. Uh, Mr. Towles is a guy that I really respect because as a, as a man, he was, a, he was in the uh, marketplace. He was like an ad guy or something. He was, 
He was just doing this moonlighting uh, no- novel writing kind of thing, kind of like J.R. Tolkien did, you know, had a real job and then uh, did this on the side. Okay, and uh, he wrote this fantastic book about a man who's sort of this aristocrat, poet, doesn't really do anything. He's sort of the old school French flanois. Is that how you say it? Somebody who observes the world. They spend a lot of time walking around town and having conversations. Yeah, that's this guy. He's that guy. And it opens up with him on, on trial at a Bolshevik tribunal. And he's on trial uh, for refusing to repent for his aristocratic ways. It's just this excellent opening where they give him a little, they, they accuse him. And of course, the accusation, the, 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 the penalty could be death. All right. Uh, but he gets mercy because one of his old poems was a big fan favorite of the young revolutionaries in the Bolshevik party. And so this, this man ends up being um, confined to a life in this really nice hotel in Moscow. And while he's in this hotel, that's, how this, that's where the story really unfolds in the life of this hotel over the period of many, many, many years. And through the conversations between the bellhop and the, and the gentleman and, and the, the young girl that he mentors who ends up becoming a Bolshevik and then very passionately radical in the political stuff and then kind of makes a turn. So that, through those conversations, you really get a sense of where the story, um, where the story is really finding its center of gravity. It's the, in this sort of what happens, what happens whenever the world around you completely changes and you're the one, you're like the witness to the change. You can't do anything. There's nothing you can do for better or for worse to really make it better on yourself. You simply must watch and bear witness to what's happening. And so in a very, and it's a very powerful book, um, I thought it was pretty boring. About half of it was really boring. Um, I don't know how many stars I gave it. I probably gave it like three stars. Let's see. What does Goodreads say I gave it? Oh, I gave it four stars. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's um, it's a mega bestseller. One of those books that if you really want to be, you know, somebody who's thoughtful, I think what, what really attracted me about the book was the way that the author could capture a conversation between two people over tea is one of the most interesting um, pieces of the book. Because conversation is very difficult. To have a really flowing, a very long, flowing, fun, enlightening conversation with another individual can sometimes take work. It's a master who can take a conversation with someone who has no idea what they're doing in the conversation and really open them up to... um, uh, to to something within themselves they didn't even know was there, so I was really impressed with the dialogue. It's probably the best part of the book, although I wish there would be a little bit more, um, <laughs> a little more like Russian Bolshevik sort of action going on. In fact, at one point there's like a reference made um, to the Bol- uh, with the Bolshevik Revolution, and there's a footnote that says, um, you know, it was called the NKVDV later. Or it was also called the KGB later. So he's like, these two are the same. So don't even try to differentiate. It's not worth your time. Note to the reader. So it's kind of funny stuff like that um, along the way, but definitely a book that if you really want to, like I said, um, read a different kind of book, this is your jam right here. Um, I recommend it. Okay, the next book, The Elementary Particles by Michelle Welbeck. The Elementary Particles. Welbeck is the highly acclaimed, best-selling French novelist, also extremely controversial. I think I've talked about him before, but 
he is somebody who he is somebody who is really ooh uh his his stuff is very graphic very graphic through violence um through other sexual proclivities things like that um uh, but they they have a purpose they have a point and in this in this book in particular it's about two boys two brothers raised by two parents who were who were very much arbiters of the sexual these representatives of the sexual revolution and so the book is a sort of running commentary of how the sexual revolution um, set up the circumstances by which the West was destroyed, which is really strange to come hearing that coming from like a, a French uh, atheist like Michel, Michel Welbeck to kind of talk about that. Some of it's very autobiographical, but it's it, it, I think that the key to the story is really in the title that's given to the book in the UK. If you buy this book in the UK, it's not called The Elementary Particles. It's only called that in America because it's like I think we have a harder time with provocative titles. I don't know why that's the case. Sort of like um, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Well, in the UK, it's called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. We just have a harder time with more ambiguous or sometimes more and sometimes more direct titles. But it's called the Elementary Particles because it's a reference to what makes us human, right? On the one hand, and also because one of the main characters works in a science lab. So there's a lot of these like obscure references to. Uh, you know what makes a human being uh, what are the chemical balances of a, of a stable human being and and an insta- unstable but in the the title in the UK is called atomized atomized right which is the perfect it's like actually the perfect title for what the book is really about which is how these boys lives are destroyed uh, because of this the sort of you know um, baby boomer um, breakdown of the family the way that the stability of the father and the mother was rocked by divorce, and um, and and it really had the direct effect of of skewering the libido and of a whole generation who didn't quite understand what really made them human. So they began to experiment in ways that other generations had not experimented, whether it be drugs or with sex, and the result was that we had found out even less about ourselves. Right there's this really great phrase in uh, from Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, where the character of Gandalf talks about the evil in Sauron, and he says that he's the kind of you know it's it's a really uh, unwise and an evil person who wants to destroy or break something just to to understand or learn about what it is. So there's sort of this balance, right, that we have to st- we we we've tried to strike in the modern world. Between a scientific worldview and a, and a one that and and then a Western worldview, the scientific worldview is like break something down into its bare essential parts. That's what it is, and then rebuild it even better than before, and that's good. We, I, you know, I want the person who has that worldview. I definitely want building airplanes and you know figuring out what drugs work the best for certain uh, ailments that we have for the body. Right, I I get that, but we have to be careful because that same mindset was was brought into uh, into the way we view ourselves and the way we view like uh, things like our sexuality and our identities. And as a result, uh, the breakdown of, our, on a, of ourselves on a cellular structure, just constantly experimenting, had the opposite effect of making us feel really small, really small. Uh, we thought we'd feel really large, but the opposite happened. Oh my gosh, I could just say so much about the, the message of this book. Uh, probably the my favorite book, that I read last year was uh, Michelle Welbeck's novel Submission. You should, I mean, if you're interested in that kind of work, you should totally get it. Uh, it's sort of this challenging, what's the future hold? 
And so this is kind of a, this, this book ends in a, in a way that I did not expect. And it's very tragic, very sad, very funny at, at times, but also very, uh, just very challenging, very shocking. If that's your bag, then look into it. Okay, three more books. We're almost done. The next book, I actually read this one for a teaching that I'm giving at my church uh, later called Spirit and Sacrament, subtitled An Invitation to Eucharismatic Worship by Andrew Wilson. He's a theologian. Um, he's in the UK. Well, Spirit and Sacrament, this idea that you have uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics all on one side, and you have Catholics and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Sacramental Christians on the other. And it's decided that we should bring these two sides together. Uh, it's a pretty compelling read, I think. It takes about 100 pages to really get to the, the juicier stuff. Well, 100 pages. 50 or 60 pages to get to the juicier stuff. It's really interesting. Um, if you're a Christian who's trying to look into what it would look like to actually uh, be just carry these two sides and in and, and, and a, and a healthy tension, this is your, this is your jam. Uh, the next one I read for another class, but also for myself, called A History of the Church in England by J.R.H. Mormon. This is a seminal work for how the church developed in England um, for the last really 1,500 years, and it's, 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 a, it's a great book. Uh, it covers a lot of the early sort of, you know, patristic period, but it, all, but it really focuses mainly on the last, um, I'd say the last 500 years since the Reformation. But the main point that Mormon makes, it makes he says the English Reformation was unlike the, the Swiss one or the German one, and the uh, and the and the and the and the French one, it differs from Calvin and Luther and and Zwingli because it wasn't like a spiritual reformation that kind of let the state and let uh, uh, mercantilism do its own thing over here while it, it kept to itself over here. It was also a reformation of state power and state understanding. So in that way, Mormon argues that the church in England had a formative influence on the, on where society in the West actually went uh, in more ways than just the liturgy, in more ways than just, you know, is a priest supposed to wear uh, this kind of color or that kind of color or that, put that kind of candle on the altar or have no altar at all, strip the altars, put more stuff on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're into that kind of thing, if you, especially if you're a history buff, it's worth your time. It really is. It's a powerful book. One that I'd, I'd highly recommend is, I think I gave it, did I give it five stars? I'm not quite sure if I did, but uh, yeah, I did give it five stars. Okay, uh, the last one, Body, Soul, and Human Life by Joel Green. I also read this one for a class. Uh, it's my second time through it, and I enjoyed it far more the second time through uh, than I did the first time. And I think he he's, Joel Green's trying to explore the scientific worldview and the biblical worldview and sort of He's okay with how many times they are incompatible, especially at what we at what we refer to as the soul. Okay, what is the soul? Right, that's that's sort of his bag. Is is trying to explain that further. So if you're if you're interested in that kind of conversation and you're a you know you like the Bible a lot, you go to church. This is definitely your um your your world here. So um I, that's pretty much all the books that I've read. I read in February. That's four, five, six, seven, eight. That's ten. Oh, good Lord. Okay, <laughs> that's two more than my normal goal. Uh, here I was worried in the beginning of February and my reading list was going to be rather small, but it wasn't. So I'm really excited about March. What I've read this month so far has been my favorite reads. Uh, lots of Tolkien. I just fell in love with his writing this year. 
And I look forward to talking to you guys next time about that. So if you like what you've heard, then go ahead and subscribe and share this podcast. Do not hold back. I want to make more of these, but in order to do that, I got to know people are actually listening and they like these. So um, I've really enjoyed my time. I enjoy talking about books. I enjoy talking about ideas in a way that's that's more, uh, you know, that's color, that adds color to life. That's not boring, but it's in a way that shows people that, hey, books and, 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 and ideas and and all those things, they actually encompass all of life, right? And so I'll end with this, uh, this paraphrase of a Chesterton quote where he says that ideas are only dangerous to the one who does not traffic in ideas. But to the man of ideas, an idea is like a lion and he has a whip. Thanks for listening. This is Millions of Tyrants with John Beadle. You have a good day.